Exodus chapter 15. For those of you who uh, are finding yourself here for the first time, and it might be the only time because you have yourself uh, a local church, uh, we are in the midst, we are in week 16 of our 50, 60 some week series through the book of Exodus. And uh, we are finding ourselves just after the Red Sea. The, the crossing through the Red Sea, and they've just come to the other side. So just a real quick update of what's going on. We are now on the other side of the Red Sea. So hear these words. Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts He cast into the sea, and His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, Glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the, the water piled up. The, the flood stood up in a pile. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil with my my desire shall have its fill of them. I shall draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. Sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and with his chariots and, all, and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider, He has thrown into the sea. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning, 
we've had the opportunity to hear Sadie Professor Faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, over the past few weeks, knowing that this, this is going to be coming up, I've been kind of that, that pastor who sometimes sits back and watches. We all kind of do that, right? We kind of sit back and watch people, see how they're responding. I've had the opportunity to, to watch her. It, well, she usually sits where? Like over here, right? And you're taking notes with the rest of the girls, and, and she's growing and learning to see what God has to say about, about her and her life. And, uh, but I've also had the opportunity to watch her sing. And some of you go, are going, oh, I hope he's not watching me sing. <laughs> right? I hope he's not listening to me sing, because that's an even scarier thing. But I've watched her, but I've also watched the family sing. This week we've had what's called Vacation Bible School, VBS. And uh, if you've ever seen the chapels sing, it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> um, Bob is a sight to behold. Uh, not only does he sing with gusto, but he also dances with, with gusto. Um, but and I think Sadie has picked up some of that. But there was a real joyousness here as we were part of Vacation Bible School. Kids, I know for some of you this may bother you, but they were standing on the pews and singing at the top of their lung. My son has lost part of his voice because he sang so loud. There was a point where the kids were singing the song there was a, where they had to put their hands on their hips and say, stand strong. And they would sing it out. Well, this morning... We are going to learn that the songs that the church sings, and sometimes that we sing with gusto, should not be because they have just catchy jingles, or because they're historic songs that make us feel warm and fuzzy. But they are, they are to be affirmations of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The songs that we sing say something about our God. It's what Christians do. It's what we do. We sing together because it is a natural, inborn way that God has given us to affirm our hope in God. And Israel's first great affirmation of faith was expressed in a song as well. But it was, if you've read this, a very different kind of song. This song is linked to Israel's passing through the Red Sea that was described in Exodus chapter 14. And this week we are going to examine this inspired song. And as we do, I trust that we, those who are in Christ, will join that Old Testament choir with added stanzas, added verses, added choruses of New Testament praise. What the children of Israel experienced at the Red Sea was definitely good news for them. But it was only a shadow to the good news that we have experienced in Christ. It's just a shadow. So this morning we're going to go through four, four different uh, pieces, four different points. And the first one is, and it's going to look kind of odd to you, the first point is this, an awful rejoicing. An awful rejoicing. The word awful is lar has largely lost its significance in our day because it has been defined down to become an adjective which describes cars. How many of you have had an awful car? It's a lemon, it's a piece of junk, and you're going, why did I buy this? Sometimes it describes political figures. Welcome to the state of Illinois, right? 
welcome to our state right now. And or or individuals who might be in sports, or you know, you look at them and go, man, that was awful. He is an awful player. He's an awful this. But the word originally was used to describe a speechless reverence before God. And as it is used in Scripture, this speechless response is in fact demonstrated in song. And such is the scene in in Exodus chapter 15. To properly appreciate this scene, try to imagine some two million Israelites standing on the other side of the Red Sea, having just crossed the arm of the Suez Gulf by foot on dry ground nonetheless. They have just crossed over. And as they march through this seabed, they would have experienced for the first time in history a walking through an aquarium. Think about the, the scene from uh, The Prince of Egypt. How many of you have ever seen that Disney movie? Throw, throw it up for me, John. Prince, next one. Remember this scene? I remember, you know, as I'm going through my studies, here's the, I, I don't think, that, just so you know, I don't think there was literally a whale in there. But that is kind of what they experienced. They were walking through on dry ground as the water kind of became like jello on each side. And they could see life passing by them. And they are walking through the midst of this deep sea. The Lord was bringing them through. They just crossed through safely. They witnessed the destruction of their Egyptian enemies who had been in hot, hot pursuit. And the Lord promised through Moses if they would stop fearing, stand still, hold their peace, they would see the salvation of the Lord. They would see it before their very eyes. And truly, the Lord fought for them. And the proof was in the many corpses and the shattered chariots on the seashore. So let me ask you this. If you were in their sandals, where your enemies were in hot pursuit after you, and they were out to either destroy you or bring you back into slavery, what would be your response? How would you respond if you all of a sudden saw the very ocean that was divided shut down over your enemies? I would imagine some of you would break into song. Some of you would go, Na 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 na. You kind of say, hey, 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 you know, goodbye. Because there's a sense that I have been delivered. So when I use that word awful, I mean quite literally. They were filled with awe, full of awe. The scene opens with the word then first word in in verse 1 is then, which suggests the children of Israel were indeed fresh into their experience of deliverance. They were looking upon the corpses of those who had made their lives so miserable, who threatened their lives for some 400, 430 years. They were ecstatic with joy that God had so miraculously delivered them. And when the people are happy, When you are happy, if you have children, you know this. When children are happy, they often express their joy in song, right? Such songs should be the spirit of our gatherings. But how will this come about? Well, I would suggest that we must, as it were, 
see the corpses of our own lives, our old lives on the seashore, if we will ever join our brothers and sisters in the song by the sea. We must see our old lives dead and left behind. And the longer that we have been saved, the more that we contemplate what the Lord has done in bringing us to Jesus Christ, the more that we contemplate, meditate, and understand that, the longer we've been saved, the louder our songs should be. But isn't it quite the opposite? That I, I know for me that moment that I professed my faith in Jesus Christ was a moment where my heart was just bursting with joy and I could not believe there were tears falling down my face and I was singing at the top of my lungs even sometimes words that I didn't understand because they were new songs. I'm going to sing it at bad time to jump in. Bad, you know, and everybody around me is going, dude, calm down. But it seems like the older that we get, the quieter our song becomes. Several years ago, a book was published named uh, Give Praise to God. It was a compilation of a bunch of different essays written by a bunch of different pastors to help churches biblically reform their worship. And it was dedicated to James Montgomery Boyce, who was currently at the time the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. In this book, Boyce's longtime worship leader, his name was Paul Jones, who was, he was the minister at the church, recalled how it was a joy for, for him to watch Boyce each and every week bouncing on his toes singing praises to God. And even a few days before his death due to a liver cancer, Boyce was composing hymns which gave praise to God for his salvation. And so it came to no surprise to me that uh, to read the words of Phil Riken, who took over uh, James Montgomery Boyce's place at 10th Presbyterian, for him to recount Boyce's view of corporate singing, singing together. And this is what he wrote. In one of his last sermons, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce described music as a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and His truth in meaningful and memorable ways. It is a case of our hearts joining with our minds to say yes, yes, yes to the truths that we are embracing. So when we see something of the glory of God, the power of God, the strength of God, the faithfulness of God, the character of God, then we will be filled with such awe that we cannot be satisfied with the simple of releasing of balloons silently and celebrating in quiet, memorable kind of ways. We're not satisfied with simple, quiet, contained worship gatherings. These are to be places that we loudly and joyfully express our joy to God. Secondly, second point is this. An antiphonal response. For those of you who are not part of uh, the music world, when you hear antiphonal, you're going, I don't know what that means. But this song is the oldest in Scripture. And I hold with many others that this song was antiphonal, which simply means that after each verse was sung, a phrase was repeated 
by another group. So we sing a verse, and then someone else will sing something else. We'll sing a verse, and they'll repeat what they just got done singing. We'll sing another verse, and they will sing this song again. And this was the purpose of including verses 20 and 21 to reveal the part of Miriam and her singers, what they played in this whole song. As the congregation sung this song composed by Moses, Miriam and her ladies' choir would repeat after each stanza, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea. Sing to the Lord. So every time, they, they would sing that again and again. In a sense, it was a, a means by which the congregation was being instructed, commanded, do not forget what the Lord has done. And it's not surprising that these women, led by Miriam, had a significant role in singing this song of praise. If you remember anything about the, our past four, 15 previous weeks, the women were particularly kind of singled out in this persecution. They suffered more than any other group under the oppression of the Egyptians as their newborn baby boys were executed by being thrown into the sea, by being killed by the midwives. And so they were now having a moment of victory when they saw God's justice being dispensed on the Egyptians. There is great joy. Sing to the Lord. For He has triumphed gloriously. I remember my son that they took from me, threw him into the Nile. Sing to the Lord. For He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, He's been thrown into the sea. Historically, Reformed and Presbyterian churches have had such an antiphonal response. And we've even experienced it kind of this morning, haven't we? When one is leading a service around Egypt time, uh, Egypt time, Easter time, you'll often hear the pastor say, He is risen! Yeah, that's typically it's not quite that dull. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen indeed. Or, or how about this? May the peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Okay, so a lot of times, or this is the word of the Lord. So, so there's this antiphonal, and we're instructing each other. Thanks be to God, right? Absolutely, thanks be to God. May he be with you, and also with you. There's this response that we have for one another. It's helpful. It's necessary. And therefore, all of us should be rejoicing and saying amen to the Lord's saving work in our lives. And it's interesting that this text tells us that the song was sung by Moses and the people of Israel. And yet it begins, if you look carefully, still in verse 1, it begins with the singular. I will sing to the Lord. Moses and the people of Israel are singing it together. Walter Kaiser, a commentator, is helpful here, noting of the phrase, I will sing that. He says this, the whole community praises God as one collective person. Yet each one also makes such praise confession personally his own. So when we sing together, we are corporately as one voice, as one body. We are the body of Christ, right? 
We are the family of God. And when we sing together, we are confessing and praising together as one voice. But at the same time, we are personally saying, yes, this is true. So let us note that this antiphonal singing implies that everyone was participating in this phrase. Everyone. In fact, one ancient rabbinical writing adds this comment to the text about I will praise. They say this, even the sucklings drop their mother's breast to join in with singing. Even the children. Even the embryos in the womb joined the melody. And the angels' voices swelled the song. So there's a corporateness to the covenant community that we have. And we should observe here that those who were redeemed were not confused concerning who should be getting the praise. Should not be concer- confused at all, for they sang to who? The Lord, right? Yahweh, the Lord, had done a mighty work, and they were sure to give Him all the praise and the credit. And we need too to regularly contemplate this truth that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not what you do. Salvation comes from Him and Him alone. And we do so, as we do so, we must be sure. We must be sure to translate this truth into praise. Translate the truth into praise. Head knowledge. Missio Day Church, I want you to hear this. Head knowledge. Uh, head knowledge and doctrinal correctness is not enough. Head knowledge and doctrinal correctness is not enough. It must affect our vocal cords as well. It must. Hear the words of Matthew Henry, a, a Puritan, regarding this. He said this. You could throw the slide up, John. The capacity for poetry and music, and are being delighted with them, were doubtless implanted by God Himself in human nature. They ought, therefore, to be employed in His service and consecrated to His glory. In other words, God has given us this ability to sing and to praise and to enjoy Him. When you have been redeemed, when you've been saved, when you recognize His work in your life, there is something that you naturally start to do. You sing. You praise. You lift up your voice. They sang praise to God. His covenant name appears some 13 times in this passage. And they were once again reminded that He alone is God. And they were thoroughly impressed with Yahweh. They were in awe of Him. And therefore, this song to God burst forth. Man, I just... I long for those days where we as a covenant community just burst forth in praise. I pray that our corporate gatherings would be increasingly marked with the fullness of wonder, the fullness of love, the fullness of praise as we reckon the truth that He has triumphed gloriously. As Matthew Henry reminds us, all that love God triumph in his triumphs. What is his honor should be our joy. So when we get 
a grip on the truth of the sovereignty of a holy God, then we will find plenty of reasons to praise God. And when you are blessed, when you personally, individually are blessed by Him with a miracle, when you see His hand at work in your life, then we should sing His praises along with you. I pray that we will learn to say, isn't God good? And that we will all learn to reply, yes, indeed, He is good. Third, an appropriate response. As you thoughtfully read or listened to this song, you may have found yourself somewhat troubled. If you really read it critically, at least you guys admit that there was a little bit of you that was slightly uncomfortable with the picture that was portrayed here. In verses 3 through 12, there are several references to, to the death of the Egyptians. And what were they doing on the other side? Woohoo! But they, they were celebrating death. And to begin this, their, the Egyptians' demise is attributed directly to God. Not the people's uh, military prowess, but God's mighty hand. Their death was attributed to Him. And to begin this note, verse 3 describes God as a man of war. A man of war. A warrior. And for some, this is absolutely inconsistent with their view of who God is. Because in our day and age, who is our God? He's described as a God of just love. He's kind of like our great big Santa Claus. You know, kind of like the Michelin man, kind of pudgy, soft, and just kind of doles out church candy to keep you awake and make you happy. You kind of pray that if you put a quarter in, you're going to get the blessings that you want. That's my God, right? He's a loving God. He, he, he's like a grandfather figure who just hands out whatever I want. And he huddles, cuddles me. And when, when I'm sad, he's right there. But this seems for many inconsistent with their view of God. But John Calvin noted this. Although at first sight the phrase may seem a harsh one, still it is not without beauty that God is armed in military attire to contend with all the forces of His foes. Note that after God was being introduced as the man of war, Moses described Him in terms of what theologians call anthropomorphisms, which is a fancy way of saying we use human terms to describe Him. And He does so in each case in describing the destruction of His enemies. Listen to it. He cast. Who did? God cast. God cast His Pharaoh's army into the sea. They sink like a stone to the bottom of the sea. He shatters the enemy into pieces. He exercises His wrath against them and treats them like stubble. He blows on them His judgment. And this results in them sinking like lead to the bottom of the sea. Kind of a warm grandfatherly figure, right? Grandpa makes you sink like lead. Is that anything you do? No, maybe. Don't mess with him. <laughs> so there's, and this passage ends with praise for God's glorious power in stretching out His hand with the result that the earth basically gulps up the Egyptians. So in a day and age where sentimentality rules, and sadly, even in the church, this picture of God makes people feel extremely uncomfortable. 
But the only reason that some may have a problem with this is because there is a failure to see the evil of sin against the backdrop of a holy God. The evil of sin against the backdrop and the purity of a holy God. So how does this apply to us? How do we, I, I don't know too many songs that we sing about the destruction of our enemies, do we? When was the last time we sang one of those songs? So, so how do we apply this? Because, the, yes, the children of Israel rejoiced over the destruction of Pharaoh, and they praised God for this. But over what should we rejoice in our day in 2014? How do we do this? So in order to do this, I, I'm going to first identify a principle and then illustrate it with a very contemporary illustration. In addressing this issue, Mario Degangi notes that the wrath of God is not a vehement, irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, capricious venting of some super, a supernatural spleen. That's not what this is. He goes on to say, it is the manifestation of the repugnance of a holy God against all who defile, disrupt, and destroy his world. Riken, Phil Riken, who cites Diganji in his commentary on Exodus, goes on to observe, Moses is not describing some random acts of violence, but righteous acts of divine judgment that God would, and listen to this, that God would execute because of his great love for his people. If you, if you are a person who has a child or someone that you dearly love, a spouse, a, a mother, a father, and anybody harms them, defiles them, abuses them, emotionally, sexually, verbally, in any way, what is your response as, as one who loves them? Well, you know... That's all right. We don't have to worry about justice. What happens, happens, right? No, as a parent, there is this, this righteous anger of demanding justice. And that is what ha is happening. God is saying, these are the people that I love. In fact, I love them so much that while they were yet sinners, my son, Jesus Christ, is going to die for them. I love my bride. I love my children. And anybody who defiles them, who destroys them, who harms them, they will be on the wrong side of my wrath. So we can conclude that the believer should rejoice as we see God totally defeating His foes. We should rejoice. Whether that be the Islamic State of Iraq or Syria, that is killing men and women and children for not converting to Islam? Or whether it be in the age of our, the rank liberals in the church who just mock, who mock sin outright. And yet, at the same time, we should guard our hearts against self-righteousness. In his use of his means to defeat his enemies, to the promotion of His glory, we should rejoice. Lastly, an assuring revelation. Consider the scene. They, they've crossed the Red Sea 
having clearly experienced one of the greatest miracles to date. They have witnessed the destruction of this fierce and threatening army by the same waters that had been the source of their own deliverance, right? They, they, had, they were safe and sound, and they were no longer between the desert and the deep blue sea, but now they were between the deep blue sea and the promised land. They were on their way. They have moved from a, a position of apparent vulnerability of attack to an amazing position of victory that was not even their own victory, but given to them as a gift. And therefore, don't you suppose, after having just experienced this amazing victory, seeing God win this battle for them, that they would be optimistic about future victories? If God did this for us now, could you imagine what is going to be happening in our future? After all, having this miracle behind them, don't you think that they would be all the more encouraged to believe in God all the more for more miracles, for further conquest, for His continued faithfulness? In other words, having just experienced the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver them from Egypt, is it not reasonable to assume that they now believe in Him for the fulfillment of all of His promises. That's even like we saw it this morning with profession of faith. We, we believe in, in baptism, that uh, the simple setting apart a child through baptism sets them apart in a community of believers. They become a part of our, the, the church. But God promises that there's certain promises for those who, of believers, right? That if we instruct our children in the way of the Lord, that He will save them. And so this is just a fulfillment. Not only does He save them, but He is going to do something glorious. So God has promised that the children of Israel, that He delivered, He would deliver them from Egypt into Canaan. So there's another peace still coming. The first part of the promise has been fulfilled. And now it was time for the second part to happen. Thankfully, at least in this point of the story, the children of Israel have believed in God. And this faith is expressed in that final stanza of the song. And this passage is clearly a prophetic revelation of the conquest of the land of Canaan, the promised land. One commentator writes, the order in which the nations are listed follows the geographic sequence of the route that the Hebrews will use to travel to the promised land. Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. Is a, it's a prophetic song about their journey. And each time after they sing that song, they would hear Miriam and their choir say, ah, sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Remember, He has triumphed gloriously. As you travel from this place to this place to this place to this place, remember in your head, ah, sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider He's thrown into the sea. Remember that. It's a, pro a song of prophetic promised victory. It is as if the people of God realized and therefore rejoiced in the fact that God, what God has done for them previously was an assurance of what He would do for them ultimately. The past served as a promise for the present and the future. That is, the Lord performed His work of deliverance 
if he did that, then they can count on much more for his glory. So the children of Israel could expect many more promises, many more miracles, all because of the steadfast kindness, the steadfast love of God. So God's covenant love was a guarantee, a promise, a seal that this drowning of the Egyptian army was only a foretaste of the victories that would be coming. If God had defeated the enemy, then surely they could expect more of Him defeating their future enemies. His loving kindness, His merciful care, His steadfast faithfulness as expressed and experienced in these heroic deeds at the sea were a pledge by God. In a sense, God is raising His right hand and saying, I will fulfill my promises in giving you the the land that is before you. So brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, I want you to take heart. I want you to take heart because His kingdom has come. You know, even in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It it has come. Christ has inaugurated His kingdom. And in a far more glorious and beautiful way, than the Israelites ever anticipated. Just as Moses recognized that Yahweh, the Lord, will reign forever, and that His dominion, His rule has no end, so we, the Israel of God, can take comfort in the God who saves. That is Jesus Christ continuing, and He will continue and will continue forever to do so. Matthew Henry observed in this connection, it is the unspeakable comfort of all of God's faithful subjects. Not only that He reigns universally and with incontestable sovereignty, but that He will reign eternally. And there will be no end to His dominion. So as we bring an end to this this study, let me make some observations that we should be singing. The same song of Moses today. Even in Revelation 15, 1-4, through 4, there is this, this great scene in the throne room of God. This amazing song at the very end. And it says this, And then I saw another sign in heaven. Amazing and great! Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a glass, sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who were, had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. I, I got this like uh, when I grew up in the church. There's a song by the sea of crystal. Saints in glory's dead. Myriad. Done with the singing. But the, it goes on to say this. And then they sang the song of Moses. (laughs) In heaven, they are singing this song. Heaven, sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Can you imagine how it will swell in heaven? It will swell. And the song they were singing, the songs of Mo, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great 
and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will fear, O Lord? And who will glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts will be revealed. The scene here is like the scene in Exodus 15. The Lord has given great victory. And they were reveling in this victory. Their enemies are crushed. And now the future of the church is as bright as the promises of God. Jesus Christ has given us the assurance that He, through the church, will indeed cause all the nations to come and worship Him. So believers, take heart. And I mean it. Take heart. You have been delivered from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God's dear Son. You have been delivered. You have experienced the miraculous and the gracious deliverance from the penalty of sin. You've been delivered. Not only have you been delivered from that, let this be your assurance that you will be delivered from the power and the pleasure and yes, one day even the presence of sin in your life. So go forth. Go forth in confidence that your reigning, living, sovereign God will give you victory in the land that lays before you. Which is in 15 minutes. Which is in a half an hour, in a day, in a week. He will give you victory. Church, the, Christ, the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest guarantee that the Great Commission will succeed. It will succeed. So let us go forth with a song of victory in our hearts and on our lips. We may not be able to know exactly how it is going to happen, but you know what? We know that His promises are true. Go therefore into all the world. Make disciples of every nation. Just do it. Go forth knowing that He is reigning and His promises are true. We're not going to know for sure how it's going to work out, but just do it. Because he is the one who is going, has won and is winning the battle. And finally, lastly, and this is probably the, the hardest part is, as a pastor, is this. If you have not responded to the good news of Jesus Christ, if you would mark yourself as an unbeliever, you are on the wrong side of the cross as you continue to refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The songs of victory that we are able to sing with full heart and great joy only further serve to condemn you. Why not join us on this side of the sea of God's wrath? By His grace thanks be to god by his grace he has afforded you the opportunity to do so repent of your sin turn from your ways your self-reliance your independence and turn to him trust the lord jesus christ as your savior and hear me say this he will save you. And He will save you now. 
Let us pray. Father God, we, uh, we rest and we receive in the good news of Jesus Christ. And because of that, that gives us hearts that are swelling with gratitude, with joy. Sometimes even our hearts and our minds and our eyes water from the, reveling in your goodness and your mercy. So God, we, we praise you this morning for your loving kindness. We praise you for your, your faithfulness. We, we praise you that your, your promises are bright and sure. God, when our hearts are feeble, when we have questions and doubts, may we recall the words of Miriam, sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. And may we look to Your promises that that is true for us today as it was for the Israelites who saw the salvation from the Lord, from the Egyptians. And Lord, for those here today who are finding their hearts hard and their minds confused or not convinced, Lord, I pray that you will open their hearts and their minds to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ who, who desires to save us, to rescue us from ourselves and rescue us from the wrath of God and transfer us from that world to the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. So God, I pray this morning that in this crowd, Lord, I know there are hearts in, that are like this this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will change hearts by the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word. Would you make them new? And we pray this in Jesus' name.